Well, good morning. We continue in our sort of mini-series through the book of First Timothy, and we are looking at moral clarity, and particularly how this moral clarity is working itself out in the uh, second five commandments of the Ten Commandments. And today it's, you should not, what exactly? Kill? Murder? Kill unjustly. We'll look at that, but one thing we can affirm, and sadly, that we live in in an era where we are particularly aware of this culture of violence, as the Pope has described it. A culture of violence. You know, it's interesting as we think about America that, that here's where I'm tempted to go into all kinds of stats and and we know where that's going to end up. I mean, I have one just to help you understand what I'm about to say, that, that there was a 55-year study conducted by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in America, and it discerned that America is the most violent of all countries with similar living standards, public safety, and social policy. That is, if compared to Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Britain. We are, in a significant way, the most violent of all. But then, of course, I could move to other stats. It's also true that in America over the past 50 years that, that assaults have, increased, have, have, have continued to go down. That for 50 years, the, the rate of assaults is going down. Now, this is about where it starts to go in a very wrong way. You can appreciate how these sorts of stats so quickly get politicized. You can see how one uh, group in America would want to accentuate one stat and another accentuate another, but, but for the Christian who has a moral sense of clarity that it transcends the politicization of morality. For the Christian who understands the law, the way that Paul understood it and the way that the Scripture understands it, which is the law cycle, that is, the law as it is, has its three uses, beginning with moral clarity, but then moral humility, which leads to moral redemption, which then restores us to the law, which becomes, therefore, a guidance as to be moral. But if you were to exempt that moral cycle of the use of the law, well, inevitably, we, we have moral clarity reduced. We have moral humility turned into moral indignation and self-righteousness against those who are lawless in our own mind. And we turn moral redemption into moral campaigns. I want you to think deeply about this. I mean, this is where I'd like to go the route of the world for a moment and say, the command is thou shalt not murder. I would tell you a little bit about murder, what murder is and what murder isn't, and that's exactly what we will do. 
even though I'll qualify that word murder. And that's when I would then become a kind of Pharisee in whatever camp that I politicize it in. Because if there's anything that I've observed, even in the last 20-something years, it's just how self-righteous and pharisaical our culture has become as we've engaged moral issues. I mean, you just have to choose one or the other channel. Duh. And it's going to be one after another, after another, after another diatribe against the other side's morality. The self-righteousness is just off the charts. The pontifications, the ethical slams, it just goes on and on. And it begs the question, really, especially today, you should not kill unjustly. How does that get translated in the Bible? For right now, I could say, have any of you killed someone unjustly? Raise your hand. I won't ask you to do that. We haven't gotten to the explication of what that would be. But let's just assume for a moment that many of you would would say, well, not me. And therefore, the second use of the law has been exempted. Moral clarity didn't lead to moral humility. It led to moral indignation and condemnation. Because now we would begin to feel free and somehow morally set free from this navel-gazing self-introspection. And we would start looking at the world and we would start blaming again this or that side for how they are guilty of murder. We've lost the clarity, and there would be no redemption, only condemnation. It's true, there is a lot of violence in our world today. Particularly, it's true that that of all the outward violences, the mass violences have increased very significantly. We live in an age of terror. We live in an age of mass shootings and killings. But again, is that all that's envisioned by the Sixth Commandment? I mean, are there root causes of those things? Are there attitudes and behaviors and communications that escalate violence in a manner that make it increasingly easy in our culture to solve our problems violently? Are there violent words, thoughts, emotions? Does that have anything to do with this culture? I emphasize the word culture of violence. You know, to give you yet another level of understanding of how the law was understood by Paul and by the Bible as a whole, I'm going to give you five principles before we move into this passage very quickly. The Bible and Paul understood that the moral law is perfect. Now, by perfect, I mean that word in an old English sense. As a completed, as a complete and holistic thing, rooted in something higher than the law itself. That's what we mean by thy law is perfect. 
perfect. The psalmist speaks of that often. Rooted in a transcendent reality, of course, which stops at God. Secondly, the Ten Commandments was understood less as a complete law, but as a chapter head or a title for a whole groupings of laws. So the law is perfect. The Ten Commandments is a law category or an ethical category of which then the rest of Scripture, and particularly you look in the Old Testament, Leviticus and etc. and Deuteronomy and and then in the New Testament, places like Romans and Ephesians, and here even alluded to by Paul in 1 Timothy, you would see how that law then has many subtitles and categories and ethical uh, issues. So the law is perfect. The law is, is only ethically categorized in the Ten Commandments and, and filled out in the rest of Scripture. Third, and this is key, crucial, and you'll see it all through the Testaments, both old and new, that it's not just the outward behavior of that law, but it's the attitude, speech, overt behavior, uh, or overt behavior, which encourage a particular sin, which is also then the sin against that law. Let me say that again. I kind of blew it through it. Attitude, speech, covert, overt behaviors, all of this stuff that encourage or lead to, in a progression, the most extreme and outward manifestation of that law. Four, very clearly, laws which are stated in the negative, that is forbidding something, are implicitly positive as well. In other words, don't do this, by implication, do this. You see that not only in the scriptures everywhere, as we will today, but, but you'll see that in many of our confessions, in the classic confessions that we use through church history, where there's, there's, this, there's this emphasis not only on what we've done wrong, but what we fail to do right in the way that pertains to even the Ten Commandments. And finally, the law is spiritual. That is, it directs us to the entire person, not just body, but also spirit. And therein we begin to encounter what we describe in classic terms, original sin. Not just sins, all those other things, one, two, three, four, speaking of sins, but five, it directs us to a deeper level sin, a sin of spirit. A sin that relates us to the ultimate spirit, God where we discern in ourselves something's really wrong. And that's, and only then have we gotten to moral humility. Now I'm going to take you through these five concepts as related to you shall not murder. Or we're going to do that with the help of Paul and the rest of scripture. But hopefully you're getting a a little bit of a sense that this sermon is not going to exempt anyone. And I'm just going to tell you right in advance if you're not at the place of moral humility by the end of this sermon, not, I mean, I'm talking every one of you and me, then the law has not fulfilled its second use. But only when it brings you there will you then recognize that Jesus is your Savior, not just an ethical guide 
That's the moralism of those who've lost the gospel in religion. I want you to hear that, especially if you're not familiar with religion. There is a religion, and there is a kind of religion that is everywhere around right now that lost the second use of the law, and therefore, or in the full sense of moral humility versus this moral self-righteous indignation, politicized even worse. But then the law of the third use, where in, in moral humility we look up and we see a Savior. The thankfulness that I pray God will lead you to today, to this table, that would be my goal if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I pray the three uses of the law that you would cycle through today would bring you to a place of crying out, who will set me free? Answer, the perfection of the law in Christ fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, come. Speak to your people on a law which we all would, I suspect, think we understand. It seems pretty plain. Oh, but Lord, we know. Bring us to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Well, first of all, the law is perfect. That is, you shall not now, what is that word murder, we'll say? That's the, the, the ESV translation in, in, in Exodus. It's rooted in something higher. We know that. At level one, it's rooted in the intrinsic sanctity of human life. That is to say, the sanctity of human life is the image of God itself. Genesis 1, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There it is. Humanity is not just another animal. Humanity is not just another creation. Humanity is not of equal value to a tree or even to a a pet. That's getting lost today. It's just incredulous, but it's getting lost. But there it is, the sanctity, the unique sanctity of the human life. There is none other creature or Creation, wherein it is said that God breathed his life into them. Wherein God would call them in my image. Genesis 9, therefore, will extend this. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. God is saying there, so sanctified is the image of God. Now, again, we'll get into this in a minute. That it is deserving of life for life. Human life is valuable regardless of the perceived economic or utilitarian or social value to society or a segment of society. Human life is of great value regardless of a society's perception of this or that value system. This is important. It's, it's going to envelop now the, hum, the, the, the extent of human life with all sorts of perceived disorders, perceived inconsistencies, whatever else you want to call them, illnesses. Human life, with all of its diversity, 
with all of its racial, socio-economic development, with all of its utilitarian or non-utilitarian value, with all of the ways in which we categorize value as related to work and ethics, etc. Well, we just transcend all of that. Every human life is uniquely valuable. For our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is, bears the sacred image of God. Level two, this image of God. Genesis 2, then the Lord God formed humanity from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this man became a living being. Again, this is more sacred than you think. This is not just, he just started me breathing. This breath is the word spirit. He breathed the spirit into humanity. Second, First Samuel 2 then would say, the Lord kills and brings to life. No, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. That is to say, at level 2, there is a, a sovereignty of God alone over life and death that is explained here. There is no one but God who has the right to take a life. That's going to be huge. No one but God. Through whatever means he might appoint, and we'll get into that, but no one but God can take human life. And then there's a deeper level still, level three, this perfection of the law. Unjust killing is ultimately then considered violence against God personally himself. Unjust killing or murder or whatever we're talking about is ultimately violence against God vis-a-vis against the image of God. You remember the Psalm of David in Psalm 51. It's one of, one of the most utilized psalms for confessions that we use in the church throughout the centuries. And the psalm that he wrote after Nathan convicted him of his sin of murder, the murder of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who David was having an adulterous relationship with, he penned this psalm. Now think about what he had done. Not only had he violated Uriah by, by taking, using his uh, uh, authority, his power, it's, the, it's maybe one of the greatest abuses of power that we could ever read about. And it's talking about David, no less. Which, by the way, begs, what is the other uses of the law that could somehow bring David to be a type of Christ? Boy, that's a, that's a big one right there. But think about what's going on here. David, in this age of sensitivity, rightly so, about the abuse of power in violent ways, David was the ultimate of ultimate hero kings, taking his power in order to take one of his soldiers who he sent out to battle's wife and then killing that soldier to hide his sin. And he wrote this. You'd think, well, he sinned against Uriah, right? Well, yes, he did. It's likened unto it, says Christ about the law in the second commandments about how we treat one another. It's related. But then he says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, Lord. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you will be justified in your words of condemnation and blameless 
and your judgment. All violence against one another is violence against God. It takes it real personal. So that's question one, the perfection of the law. Question two, how then does this law, which is in a title form, get worked out? What is this word and what does it mean? Well, notice very carefully, 1 Timothy 1.9, the word that's used is translated in the ESV, murderer. A little more detail, that word actually is a, is a word, it's taken from the, the Greek verb form, which is to uh, murder someone, you could say. But more particularly, if you look at the lexicon and it's used throughout the New Testament, I won't go through and show it to you all. But basically, it's, it's really broader than that. It's any illegal taking of law, unjustified taking of life. In fact, in the Greek, there's many words for the word to kill. This is a specific word with a specific intent of speaking of unjustified killing, which, of course, is going to beg the question, what's unjustified? But there it is. It's unjustified killing. It's very different than the word even to kill. We see that word, a very different word used throughout. Those who don't fear those who kill can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Different total word. It's not a word that's used with respect to uh, the centurion or the military or the government or in all sorts of language. It's the same thing we find in the Old Testament, Exodus 20. You shall not murder in the ESV. Um, There's at least eight Hebrew words for the word to kill. And therefore, what does it mean, this word? Again, unjust killing. Well, it's interesting the word used there in the Hebrew is never used in the legal system or in the military. There are other words for the execution of death sentences or for the kind of killing a soldier might do in mortal combat. Nor is the word ever used for hunting or killing animals. So it's important that we do our homework. So what I want to do now is just very briefly, and this is the part that is going to be the least satisfying to me personally because it's all too quickly politicized. But let me at least, for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, bring some more clarity as what it is and what it isn't. First of all, what is clearly not prohibited by this word and its use throughout Scripture? It is not a prohibition against all killing. First of all, it's not thou shalt not kill. The Bible and most Christians throughout history recognize that there are some situations where the taking of life is not only permitted but even warranted if never desired, as a means of honoring and governing life itself. It's not a prohibition against self-defense or defense of the innocent. For instance, self-defense and by extension defending others' persons, family members, whoever that is, is not wrong and could be argued as even required to keep the Sixth Commandment. Esther 8, 11, by those letters the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them with their children and women and to plunder their goods. It's pretty intense, but notice very carefully how it explicated the Sixth Commandment. Ephesians 5, 29, for no one ever hates his own blood, but he nourishes and and tenderly cares for, which is just the opposite you see. Who, how would you then nourish and take care and defend 
those in whom you have been put in office to protect. The Westminster Confession, our own consensus, 350 years old, it's a prohibition against, quote, all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in cases of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. That's by way of clarity. Secondly, by extension, therefore, it's not a prohibition against just war. In the words of Stephen Carter, war is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater life horrors. That is extended to our police force. That is extended to our military. Now, to be sure, what is just war? It's not for the prerogative of any one person. It's appointed by God in a governing capacity. Romans 13, as with Genesis 9, makes it clear that the power of the sword is given to governments and not individuals. What exactly constitutes just war in any given specific instance is always open to debate. And that a specific instance will need to apply the general principles to specific circumstances on the ground relative to various modern contexts. And then that goes on to say, how does globalization impact this question? Technological advances. National security is much more complex than it was perhaps before biological, genetic, and nuclear warfare were real threats. On this thing could go, but we don't as Christians start with the premise, all war is wrong. That's all I'm saying. Three, it's not a prohibition against capital punishment. It's a form of punishment as even in the words of Scripture, lawful revenge. Now, this is probably the hardest one to say. I suspect the most politically incorrect in this room and in our society. I understand that. But it, I'm here for moral clarity. There's perhaps a very difficult thing, but in Romans 12:19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then it begs the question, well, how will he do that? You could be thinking in heaven or hell, right? But then right after that, chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Hear that? No one has the right to kill anyone but God through whatever means he appoints. And those authorities will exist and have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He goes on to say, and it is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Why would there be a lawful use of killing for the sake of vengeance? Well, again, it's viewed in Scripture as that which then would would honor innocent life, those who would be the victims of those who would be killed dishonorably. Exodus 21, then, whoever strikes a person morally shall be put to death. Exodus 21, whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. On it goes and on. These unlawful executions. Now, whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human shall that person's blood be shed. Genesis 9, 6, again, for his own image God was made. Now, there's a qualification here. Whether or not and when modern governments ought to utilize capital punishment is not my point or the point here. 
What we're saying is we must distinguish between what the Bible recognizes as lawful, potentially, versus what the Bible prescribes as lawful in a particular situation or context. For one, even if it was prescribed in the Old Testament, our regulative principle in Scripture, remember by good and necessary for Scripture, does not then therefore mandate that it be done. We're not under the Old Covenant in that theocratic sense, and in the New Covenant we see there's a variance in this. Again, while still recognizing that it, it, is at, it is at least potentially lawful for there to be a vengeance for the sake of preserving life in a culture. I know that's very difficult. I know some of you are wrestling with that right now. But again, my point is not to mandate it. And I'm already, the reason I didn't want to do this first part of the sermon is because I know that right now it's getting politicized in your brain. Please restrain yourself for a moment. We just want to get the clarity. What does the Bible say and don't say? What is prohibited? So I've said a third things where it's not prohibited necessarily. What is prohibited? Well, let's look at the, the facts. We talk about abortion. The crucial question, of course, when does life begin, such as to incur the rights of the Imago Dei? The response of the scripture is to bias life every time. It's true, the scripture doesn't know of modern techniques. Probably doesn't understand the difference between an embryo and a pre-embryo and all this other stuff. At least the writers wouldn't have understood. We know God does, though. So what do we, what do we see in the scripture? What we do see is that life is considered the imago Dei in the womb of a woman. Psalms 139. You've been formed, my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame, not its frame, was form, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. My unformed substance, that's a developmental language there. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. And so the scriptures assumes that human life is recognized and readily apparent. It is not defined in such manner as to enter into a modern debate, perhaps, but this is important. So sacred and sanctified is life that it's always presumed in favor of life. Until by good and necessary inference we can say otherwise. And therefore I believe it is right that our church and many others believe that abortion is wrong. Um, anything, and abortion described as anything post-conception. Now you can go off into the modern science and the modern uh, technologies is their way to terminate uh, a, a life uh, prior to conception. Uh, I think there actually is now, but that's not my my pay grade here. The conception is it. Now, I'm really going to get in trouble because as a Christian and as someone who transcends the politicization of all this stuff. We, we don't have the, the, the place in the church to sit back and say, well, where can I compromise moral clarity for the sake of, say, a political game? If I were a politician, I would stand up here and I'd put the exception, except in the case of rape and incest. That's what I'd say. As a pragmatic kind of a, a means to see us move forward in our society, perhaps towards a greater good. You know, the one step backwards, two steps forward. 
can see no possibility in Scripture for this. In fact, quite the contrary. It's very interesting that in the law, in Leviticus, it talks about how uh, a, a woman could be assaulted. And if this assault leads to a miscarriage, the penalty is death for the assaulter because it's considered a, a uh, you know, an unlawful killing. On the other hand, if the woman is assaulted and there is no miscarriage, then there's going to be another crime that's, that's executed against the person, the assaulter, which doesn't lead to death. Now, this is a really important thing in this politicized context because what you might be thinking I'm saying is that all those who commit adultery, I mean uh, abortion, are murderers. I think that is, what word can I use? Politically manipulative and heinous. You see, the scripture does have distinctions between murder and what we might call manslaughter or what we might call unjust killing. This language of murder implies an intentionality, a, a, a maliciousness, a motive that comes with it. And I think it would be ungenerous and wrong for us as a church to come out and call those who've committed abortion murders. Oftentimes we're speaking of those who, one, ethically are not clear. And there's a plenty of room to at least discern the possibility of that. Two, we're talking about many instances which pity and, and mercy and, and love and, and whatever word I can use, grace should be given to the situation. Someone who is caught in a tension of horrifying realities. Pastor, how can you say this? The scripture transcends all of this. And it starts with what I said earlier. These perfections of the law rooted in in, in God. The law is perfect. Only God has sovereignty. While we, it's our secularized Christianity, and I'm telling you, it's getting secularized. I know that seems like an oxymoron, but in this world of secularization and politicization, Christians are thinking more secularly than they are biblically, even those who might share the gospel when it comes to these ethical issues. As a Christian, think for a moment. Do you believe that God is sovereign, or is it human situation and circumstance that is sovereign? Do you believe that God decrees all things whatsoever, or don't you? Is he God, or isn't he? And so, in a horrifying situation like this, we would, at the same time, want to speak of a horrific and horrible violence done against this poor individual. We would want to take every means possible to give mercy and not condemnation to her. Or, I guess, well, I can't say it that way. And we would want to do everything in our power to restrain ourselves from the political bull that would call her names in the hypers. But we would also want to clarify that this would not be a, a just killing. And we would want to take every means possible to make this situation work through the law 
uses in a way that's redemptive. And it can be done that way. In a redemptive way. I know. I'm opening up so many cans of worms that need a whole conversation. But that's at least where we are. So that's what the law is and isn't. By virtue of those outward things. But now it goes deeper. And this is where I really want to go. Attitudes, speech, overt behaviors. Old Testament and new. This is where the action seems to be. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. That is the Old Testament talking about what it means to murder. You thought just Jesus said that, didn't you? It's right there. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Here's that, I am the Lord. I am sovereign. Only I can do vengeance. Only I can kill. Only I. And I use the word, well, I don't even want to use the word because I think it calls to work. Somehow there's an anger. There's a wrath that only God, the sovereign king, always wrath in love, which to us is so incomprehensible that no wonder we don't do it. But somehow to God, there is a comprehensive unity. And the wrath of God against sin in order to love. To be, to do justice. But yes, you remember Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And right there, if you're the legalist or if you're the Pharisee or if you're the politicist and everything, you're going to say, yep, 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 yep. I can get real anal here and I can check off all the don'ts and all the do's and, and I'm, man, I'm good to condemn the world, right? Oh boy, this is going to be fun. My little self-righteous Christian. Listen to what Jesus says after he says that. After he says that. Not one stroke, not one letter, all this stuff that makes you think he's a legalist. He goes, quote, Now you've heard it said to those that you shall not murder. And that whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, here's the strokes. Here's the little strokes. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. James does a pathology of murder this way in chapter 1. How it is that we're tempted, not by God. We're tempted by desires. Lured, enticed by these desires where we then begin to covet or we then begin to fear. And we begin to then contextualize our covetousness and our fear on someone who is perceived to be the threat of that which we fear or that which we covet. In which we then turn to hostility in tone and manner and words and attitudes. And which then if that becomes a cultural phenomenon, what do you think is going to happen? In a culture that is filled with violent porn, what do you think is going to happen? What's going to happen in our culture? 
And so our confession, or Heidelberg says it this way, what does God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, that I would dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor. I mean, what are some of the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment, asked the larger catechism of our church? It goes on to talk about uh, exceptions, as I've mentioned many of them. But then it goes and says, all sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, And recreations, provoking words, oppressive words, quarreling, striking, wounding, all of which tends to lead to the destruction of life. I want to read that again. Are you listening to this? Who among you is a murderer? Who among you would say, I'm good. Isn't it convenient in the secularization of morality that we would break it from its, of its perfection and its transcendence? And wouldn't it be sad if we as Christians, as Paul were saying to the Ephesians, with your moral laxity because of your abuse of the law, would, remember, you take the law out of all three uses. If law isn't the moral clarity that leads to moral humility, that leads to moral redemption, if you cut it off after number one, We will all be moral, self-righteous Pharisees. And we'll utilize the public space of our Twitter and our Facebook. And our media will reinforce it going from this side to that side, pointing the finger. It's your fault that that mass shooting happened. No, it's your fault that that mass shooting happened. I am sick of it. Aren't you? I'm sick of it. It's just, if you're deep in the scripture, it must be... Horribly offensive to you. Because here we are the cause. Every one of us. It's deep. It's deep. It's spiritual. It even gets worse or better, depending on your point of view. Because not only does it relate to negative attitudes and behaviors and all that stuff that I just talked about. But then the final, remember number five? Laws which are negative, that is forbidding something. We've covered that now, haven't we? But they are implicitly positive as well. It's interesting how Ephesians, remember that's who he's writing the letter to Timothy to go correct. In the letter to Ephesians, he goes through the five commandments as well in great detail, covering two chapters. And in that, he will go through everything I've just said, basically, about what it isn't. But then he goes on. He says, therefore, having put away all falsehood, put away all that stuff you're not supposed to do, let each one of you speak the truth in his neighbor who are members one another. And then he says this, verse 29, let no corrupting talk out of your, come out of your mouths. That's the negative stuff we just talked about. But every time he says it, he'll add a positive. Rather... Put only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
This one particularly got me this morning as I was confessing my sins. I don't know what you confessed this morning. I happen to have had the sermon in my head, I guess. You didn't have the advantage of that. But I found myself confessing not so much, although there's plenty of it, of that other stuff. There's plenty of it. But today I was just thinking about how I so violate this. How being neutral isn't enough. Even if I could, if I could possibly approach neutrality in my, in my murderous attitudes and all of that stuff. But do I consciously and intentionally feed my neighbors with edifying, building up, grace giving talk and communication? He goes on, put off all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let it all be put away from you, along with all malice. Okay, wow, oops. But then verse 32, rather, here it comes, the positive, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Summary, back to the perfection of the law, be imitators of God, i.e., Fulfill your vocation in the image of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What did Jesus said? The whole law summed up? Love, love. Martin Luther said it this way. The commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. Stop and think about that. I sin not only by causing violence or a context for violence, but I sin when I fail to protect and save persons from violence, bodily harm or injury, he says. If you send a person away naked, that's what James said, remember? He says, you've heard it said, James going, but look, every time you send someone away naked, you've done violence to them. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. If you do, if you do no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. All right, there it is, those five holistic principles. And I think to myself, something's wrong with me. Because that last one got me the worst. There's so much stuff in my life that if I loved my neighbor, I would not own so that they could have even clothes on their back. There's so many things I do with my time that prevents me from loving you, my congregation, the way I should. I am so undone by this. I am so guilty as charged against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. The law says, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 
1 John 3.15. Here I stand. How about you? I mean, this just stinks. And here's where all the abuse happens in Christianity. Right here. Get better. Pull yourself up. Change. You hear that enough? You're going to have to start qualifying all this. You're going to have to do it or you're going to want to die violence to yourself. And very subtly, oh, it could mean that. Oh, the clarity couldn't mean that. Oh, it couldn't mean that. Oh, no, no. God, come on. We, it couldn't mean that. Here we go. Politicizing it and secularizing it. Or it means really just that, not that. Isn't it convenient? Oh, no. I don't own a gun. Whew. I'm not a murderer. Or I own a gun. <laughs> He's the murderer. Wouldn't that be convenient? With that first use of the law, naked and raw. But if I know that there's two other uses awaiting me in this sermon and in my life, I can now go to the second use of the law, moral humility. And with David, I can confess against you and you only have I sinned. I have something in me that's just wrong. It's my selfishness. It's my rejection of you, God. Please forgive me. Is there forgiveness for someone like me? Who will save me from this body of death, says Paul in Romans 7. Answer, praise be to God, Jesus Christ. So in humility, it's interesting, and I leave you with this as we come to the Lord's table. It's very interesting how in in, in in Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, that there's this little play, there's this kind of a play on words, where where Christ is said that he will, that he put to death, death, he killed, he uses this word, murder, he murdered death by going to the cross. Clearly Paul had intended for him to see that what's happening here at this table is a reminder That for those who would humble themselves and confess, yes, and there's no distinction, I sin against God and against my neighbor. Every day, every hour of the day, probably. In real gross terms, really. And I'm led then in that humility to confess and cry out for mercy. And he directs me to the cross where Christ puts to death, death. He murdered, justifiably, death. How did he do that? By never once, in all five of those manners and principles of the law that I just articulated as applied to murder, never once did this man think, say, do anything except to both love in the positive and never Hate and bitterness in the negative. To be sure, he manifested the righteous, just wrath of God, say, against the temple, abused. But this is a man who went to the cross, who suffered unjust killing. And who was raised on the third day to vindicate him as the one and only true, perfect 
righteous man according to the sixth commandment. He's the only one. Even if I were in human terms unjustly killed, Preston Graham, I would not be a perfect man who got killed. Do you see? Jesus Christ was. He is like no other, both God and man. And he is here in the presence of this place with the same spirit that once breathed life into you, seeking to breathe life into you again. If you're the Christian and you're feeling as guilty as I am right now, let the breath of God come and fill you with his grace and forgiveness and empower you. This is the prayer of Paul that led him to the five second commandments in Ephesians. Where he prays for this immeasurable power of God's spirit to be given to you, which he describes as lavishing grace upon you. Those are his words, lavishing grace upon you. Here he is. Can I do it? Lavishing grace upon you. Just like this. I'm blind. You know that. I can't see what I'm doing. But seriously, can you just feel it? Feel it. He's lavishing grace on you right now. Those who would humble themselves, who would come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. And lavishing grace upon you by giving you the Holy Spirit. Re, re. Life in your heart first. For it's from the heart that all this stuff comes. That's where the sin began. And he starts at your heart. And then it's one step at a time for the rest of your life. One step at a time. Someone in my reunion was talking about her life and a couple of months ago. And where do I even start, Preston? And I said, well, just do one step at a time. You know, just start with where you know right now. Do something, though. Start one step at a time. So here's what I want you to do as you come to the table. One, please don't compromise the moral clarity. Let it do its work. Bringing you to a place of moral humility. Crying out, God, save me. Yep, I deserve it. And then... Put your faith not in yourself anymore, but on Christ. Let him kill death for you. And as he kills it, he will give you the spirit and breathe new life into your spirit. You will be born again, they call it. Oh, it might not mean something happens. If you're thinking born again means that the light starts shuddering or something, that's not what it looks like. It's just something in your heart, and you feel it right now. I know you do, that says, I want this. Well, you wouldn't want it, apart from the Holy Spirit effectually calling you into his life. Say, come, just do it. And don't think you have to do it all right now. Just one step at a time, just do it. Just take me to the next step, whatever the next step is. And you probably know right now what that is. I need to go talk to a pastor. I need to have some questions answered. I need to go back to this person that I said something harsh to. And every step you take in the spirit is walking in the spirit. One step at a time, you are being restored as the image of God. It'll be perfected supernaturally in the day of your glorification. But now we call it sanctification, a process, one step at a time. Amen.